Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast. I'm thankful you decided to join me today as I talk with another guest about the journey towards becoming a full stack engineer. If you're wondering what a full stack engineer is, that's okay. Lots of people are. I co-opted the term to mean someone who is capable of moving across multiple silos and moving among multiple layers of the modern data center stack. doesn't mean you're going to be an expert in all these different areas, but you will have some experience and expertise in at least one discipline and a reasonable knowledge proficiency in a number of others and a strong focus on automation and, and moving um, things as, uh, as, as automated as possible. I'm, I'm very excited today to have my guest, uh, Patrick Kelso. Patrick, welcome. Thanks for being on the podcast. Why don't you take a second and introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you very much, Scott. So I'm a uh, engineer working predominantly in the Unix uh, virtualization cloud uh, automation space. It's a very big space, lots of words. Uh, my background is enterprise Unix IT and storage. So I spent a long time working for EMC on a very specific silo where I knew my silo 100%. And I've branched out since then and gone on to, I worked for Puppet for a number of years and now I'm out working on my own doing what most people these days seem to call DevOps, but full stack engineer sums it up nicely as well. All right, awesome. Now, I know, Patrick, you and I have been chatting for quite a while since before I even launched the podcast, so I'm glad we were finally able to get the schedule worked out to get you on. Yeah, time zones can be lots of fun. Uh, for those who haven't noticed, I've got a bit of an accent. I'm based in uh, Sydney, Australia. So just trying to find a time that we could both actually get together was tricky. Indeed, indeed. But I'm uh, glad that we uh, were able to work it out, and I'm really looking forward to having uh, having a chat to you today. So you heard me sort of talk about what I think the, the quote-unquote full-stack engineer is, and, and I'm looking at this as somebody who's kind of moving beyond the traditional silos that we see that are so common in, in, in many IT organizations. And it's somebody who is willing to jump in, do what needs to be done, not saying, hey, that's not my problem because it's a networking thing or it's a storage thing or whatever the case is, but hey, it's our problem. This is what we're going to do to fix it. And then working together across teams and across silos and you know, across layers of the, of the data center stack. Um, what, is, what is sort of your take on that? I mean, I heard you mention, you know, you're kind of doing the thing that a lot of people call DevOps now, but what, what is your take on what a full stack engineer is? And is there a better term that we should be using? I don't think there is a better term. And I think when we start to apply specific labels, uh, quite often it changes what the role is. Like DevOps itself over the past year, you know, a couple of years has changed dramatically based on what people think it's going, it should be. And I think a, a full-stack engineer is, is an engineer that's comfortable working across multiple domains in technology. They don't restrict themselves to a single silo. Like I used to be a NAS guy. That's what I did was network-attached storage. But instead, they have an understanding of a lot more. They understand subnetting. They understand APIs. They may not be able to program in Python, but they know that APIs exist and it's a way of working. You know, for myself... I can never remember the OSI model off the top of my head, but I know it exists and I know it's an important part of design considerations. I don't know how BGP works. I'm not convinced anyone does, but I know that it's something I have to factor in to large-scale network designs. So it's really just someone that is aware of all of the other technologies, that is comfortable doing small bits and pieces on their own, whether it's you know just asking the right questions, making sure that when you put in a service request to the BGP guys that you're telling them what you actually need instead of trying giving them vague instructions and then complaining when they get it wrong. Yeah, that's a, that's a very common approach, I think, that a lot of people. It's just it's not working, and that's all they can tell you. I've heard a number of people kind of say that we're, and, and I've even said this as well in, in a couple of recent conferences where I was speaking, 
that the full, using the term full stack engineer is really just a fancy way of saying we're a generalist again. What do you think about that? I think that it's you, most full stack engineers I know tend to be a little more focused on at least one specific domain. So for myself at the moment, that is automation. That's the domain I'm focusing on. For other engineers, it might be you know, VMware or it might be Amazon or Azure. And then you take that specific domain and you branch it out. So John Mark Troyer uh, talks about having a pie-shaped uh, skill set. So a lot of people tend to be very deep on one thing and they're very general across a lot of things, uh, whereas the pie-shaped skill set is deep on one thing, general across everything, but you're already starting to build up that second deep knowledge on a new thing. So rather than just knowing a little bit about everything, you've always got a deep knowledge, but that deep knowledge moves with time. The stuff I was deep on 15 years ago is honestly no longer relevant. Uh, so I need to be able to move along. Otherwise, I become stagnant. Hmm, that's an interesting thing. I don't think I've heard John talk about that. Was I want to, uh, we'll give John an opportunity. We'll give you the opportunity to pl- plug one of John's podcasts. Was that on one of the um, Geek Whispers or, or another, or another uh, outlet? Uh, it wasn't on the Geek Whispers, but it was uh, It was when he spoke at the, the Sydney VMUG uh, last year, I believe, or possibly the year before now. And it was, uh, it is recorded. It's it's on YouTube. So the Sydney VMUG, I think the Melbourne VMUG was the one they recorded. But if you just search VMUG, John Mark Troyer, Melbourne, you'll find the video on YouTube and you can watch his whole talk. Yeah, gotcha. I'll definitely look at that out and we'll include the URL for that. We'll include it in the show notes. So listeners, if you're interested in also having a listen to what John had to say, then we'll include that in the show notes. So you can go dig that up as well. Awesome. Thanks, um, Patrick. So uh, I'm just kind of curious, you know, you talked about this transition that you made, you spent some time at EMC focusing on, you know, one domain, the, the, you know, the single domain engineer, the one that just focuses on this one, one thing, and then you branched out. And from there, you went to spending a few years working in with, with Puppet Labs, if I, is, that, is that correct? Uh, eventually, yes. Right. I spent okay. a few years consulting, <laughs> doing, gotcha. you, know, you know what consulting's like. You, you, you go, I'm just going to consult on one technology, and you always end up becoming a jack of all trades. Of course, of course. So what drew you off to to then joining kind of Puppet out of consulting and, and then kind of now launching you into this you know broader focus with the to borrow John's term, the, the pie-shaped knowledge base? Um, for me, it was I was consulting at a bank, and they were actually using Puppet. They introduced me to Puppet, uh, and they were using it for compliance. And, I mean, I'd been a sysadmin for a long time, and when I first saw Puppet, my first thought was, where has this tool been for my career? Like, this, this is the thing I've been wanting to have for my entire career. It's a tool where you can almost literally just say to the computer, I want this, make it so, and it happens. Uh, so I looked into it and I started having a go at writing my own puppet code. And, and it was when the, the auditors came around and traditionally in IT, when, when you know, KPMG or Ernst & Young come around to, to do your compliance audits for PCI DSS or, or HIPAA or whatever compliance you have to deal with, it's a horrible time. And you just want to crawl under your desk and hide until they've gone away and they stop making you feel bad. And with Puppet, it, it was a no-brainer. We just gave them the Puppet reports. We gave, we showed them what we defined, and they left. And there were no follow-up questions. And it, it blew my mind how much of a difference it made. So I started looking into other opportunities to use Puppet and, and other technologies that I could more easily just have this, what was called infrastructure as code, and just make that part of my everyday job. That's very cool. That's a that's a cool story. What so so since that time have there been other sort of similar technologies that you have added to the mix? 
Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I'm trying to avoid being stagnant. So I use Puppet a lot. When I left Puppet Labs at the start of this year, I went and, and gave myself a refresher on all of the competing technologies like Chef and Ansible. Right. Uh, but I'm also keeping up with cloud technologies, with, with AWS and with, but also with non, non-fancy technologies, things that aren't popular, but they exist every day. I'm working at a bank now. We have a very large Sun, uh, not Sun, Oracle, Solaris-based setup. We have a very large Oracle VM setup. We have HP, uh, not OpenView, HP Operations Manager setup. These are not sexy, shiny tools, but they're tools that I have to work with in my day-to-day job. But they all have APIs now. They all have an ability to be managed by Puppet or by Ansible or by a script, which is fantastic. So I'm always looking at new tools and just trying, my first question is show me the API. Show me how I can interact with this tool without having to open up a GUI and use my mouse. Uh, okay, that's cool. Yeah, and, and that's a that's a, a, a sort of a, a, an approach that I hear others increasingly expressing, and that is that they want to start out with this automation first approach. Like, don't don't I don't want to look at this as automation being an afterthought. I want to look at it from the very beginning of how I can script this and automate it from the very start, and, and instead of having to, as you point out, you know, go through the GUI and do clicky clicky. So along the way, you know. Uh, that that move from being you know someone who's kind of i mean i spent some years at emc and you know you you kind of get really deep in the storage and then going from there and and you know naturally being forced to to kind of broaden your view as you do consulting which i also had did that for a while and then jumping in this infrastructure as code thing that's a it's a pretty big change what were some of the biggest sort of challenges or hurdles that you ran into from a you know technical or a technical learning perspective like you know what what tripped you up the most along that along that path? I think sticking to something to become deep enough on it was a big challenge because there's a big tendency in our industry to be uh, what uh, we have a term in Australia called attention deficit, ooh, shiny, which is you know, very much <laughs> described most of the engineers I work with. You know, you go, I'm just going to learn Python, and then five minutes later you go, oh, Ruby, Ruby, okay, I'll do some Ruby. Um, so just picking a technology and staying with it was hard for me, and it was a very technical challenge because I'm a very technical person, and I need to understand how everything works. I think that uh, we, a lot of us, we have that problem. Um, Docker has changed that a lot for me with the ease of which I can deploy something, and I don't get bogged down in the weeds of the deployment. I get the thing running. So the example that I'm... I'm using at the moment is the, the Elk stack, Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. Setting that up by hand takes a long time. Setting that up using Docker takes five, you know, five seconds. Docker run Elastic slash Elastic, and, it, and it's up, and it's running. I don't understand how it's running, and I need to spend more time on that, and I'll, I'll come back to that later. But just for me, just to get it up and running and be able to put some logs in it and start doing some queries to see if I'm going to get value out of knowing how this, uh, having this tool it's a huge difference uh, compared to what I used to do is where I'd start and I'd get a, go to step one and say, install these prerequisites and one of them would be MySQL and I'd go, oh, I think I can actually automate this and make this a bit faster and I'd get stuck down in the weeds and it would take me days to get a full stack up and running with you know, Elasticsearch, Rockstash and Kibana, whereas now I can do that in seconds and get on to actually getting some business value out of running it. I would never do that in production without understanding all the bits underneath, but for my lab, it's brilliant. Right. So for you, 
uh, and and I just I want to pull out for the listeners kind of some key nuggets that I'm that I'm hearing along the way. For you, the the one of the big values for Docker has been being able to get something up and running, even though you may not understand all of the details underneath. It at least lets you get to that point where you can determine is it worth me spending the time to look at all the details underneath, rather than getting bogged down in the details underneath and then finding out later on, oh, this really isn't adding the value that I hoped it would add. Yeah, that's that's a perfect summary of it. Okay, great, great. And that's I think that's a really important use case that perhaps a lot of people overlook. Um, I was also g- going to say, but I think in in kind of hearing what you what you said and then and then you know, repeating it back, I don't think this is a, a necessarily a, a a valid point anymore. But I was going to say one of the things that I hear from a lot of folks about automation and tools that make things easier is that it uh, eliminates some of the learning uh, underneath, right? So if it, if it becomes easier to deploy something or easier to automate something, or if you're just using some automated tool that you found, you know, an Ansible uh, playbook or a, a puppet manifest or whatever the case may be, a Docker container for that matter, and you don't know how it's built or how it works, I, I've had some people say that, you know, well, that's that's actually detrimental, right? But I think in going back to what you just said, there's, there's a, a specific path where there is value for it. You're getting to the point where saying, is this worth spending the time on? Yes, it is. Okay, now I can go back and dive into the minutia of how this thing works. Exactly. And I, I mean, I work at a bank. If I just did a, a you know, Docker run of an image that I pulled down off the internet and I put it onto systems that are on the same network that share people's home loans and people's bank accounts, I'd be marched out the door. There's, you know, there's no way I could do that. But if I'm doing that in a lab that's completely isolated just to make sure that we are going to get value out of the tools... It really is, for the bank, it's, it's fantastic because they're not paying for a consultant to sit there waiting for something to install, which, I mean, we've all done it. We've all sat there getting paid very large sums of money to just sit there watching a progress meter slowly march from left to right across the screen. And this just helps you get away from that. And, you know, Vagrant did it first, and Vagrant was fantastic, and Docker just made it even faster. And it's just so much easier to get started on finding out if you're going to need to go deep. I definitely stress that if you decide you do get value, go back and spend the time learning how it all holds together because it will save your bacon one day. Oh, I, I agree with that. Absolutely. So that's that's great. Thanks, um, Patrick. I'm curious. So it sounds like if we look at some of the tools or platforms, processes, procedures, whatever you term you want to put in there that have helped you along your journey, it sounds certainly like Docker has been one. And, and the value there, as we stated earlier for the listeners, was being able to get to that point to evaluate, is it worth going back and getting all the minutia? Yes, it is, because the business will be able to derive value from this particular technology. So now I can go back and dive into the details and make sure that I'm putting this in a, you know, in a, an appropriate fashion, right? Not just the Docker run on some container. You don't even know what it is. So that sounds like one tool that was certainly helpful. Are there other tools that you personally employed along, along the way during your journey? I mean, were there learning platforms that you found useful or, or books that you want to mention or, even just techniques, you know, I found it useful to do it this way that you think listeners might be able to benefit from? Absolutely. And it, it, I think you need to seriously consider getting Pluralsight to sponsor you because they have been, I think every podcast I've listened to so far has, has Pluralsight have been mentioned. And I'm going to mention them again. They're, they're brilliant. Also, Linux Academy, I've been using them for a while. Just to, what I really like is getting the videos I can put on my iPad and I can consume them later when I'm on an aeroplane or I'm on a train and I can just sit there and consume a video and then when I get to work I can get onto a computer and try and make the thing happen. Um, 
I'm a big fan of David Allen's Getting Things Done in the sense of probably the more simplified version of it, which is uh, WSD, write stuff down. So I always have a notepad about my person, and I, if I hear something interesting, I will write it down. I'll take a note, and I'll go back and review those notes. That's the important part of this process is reviewing them. And I will look into them, and I, I keep a very lengthy to-do list of technologies and things I want to do, whether it's a movie I want to see or a, a new server I want to try. And re- returning to this list and using it has been really valuable for me because, again, I'm easily distracted. So if I don't keep everything written down, I don't know where I'm up to, and I have to keep referring to that list. When I was interviewing at Puppet, I think I secured the job when in the middle of the interview, the guy that was interviewing me mentioned a really cool hack that I hadn't heard of before, uh, which is using, uh, in Bash, using dev TCP as a replacement for Telnet. And I stopped the interview and I got my, my iPad out of my bag and I, I opened up Evernote and I took a note and just, you know, dev TCP, Bash, Telnet replacement and saved it and put it back and went, okay, back to the interview. And I think that was the point where, where he said, you are clearly the right type of person for this role. This is what we want. We want someone who is prepared to do that sort of thing. So I can't stress enough a pen and paper. I listen to a lot of podcasts because, again, it's an easy way of me consuming knowledge in a method that isn't... It doesn't force me just to sit there like reading, and I read a lot. You can't read while you're walking down the street safely, Uh, whereas listening to a podcast I do when I'm running... And I'll just consume podcasts. And when you're running, there is absolutely nothing else going on in your head. So it means I'm actually paying more attention and I remember stuff a bit better. I get a lot of RSS feeds. And again, just keeping up with what's going on and knowing, you know, I get hundreds of emails from all the vendors going, we've just released the newest, shiniest thing. But it's the RSS feeds and the blogs that where people actually make these things work. And they, someone comes back and says, I just built this using these three shiny technologies that I pulled together into one, one unit. And here's a vagrant file or a Docker image, and you can do this yourself. And doing it yourself is really, I I think, again, everybody has said, hands-on learning. Just, I've got a lab at home, and I can't stress enough how important that has been for my career over the past decade. Uh, And I started my lab uh, when I actually, I received an email from from, uh, Chad Sakach when he started the V-Specialists. I emailed him and said, I would really like to be a V-Specialist. And he emailed back in a very polite uh, Canadian way and said, you're not smart enough yet to be a V-Specialist. And that made me go out and start doing things. I got you. Leave it to to Chad to throw the uh, polite Canadian uh, phrases in there. (laughs) Yeah. He was very nice about it, but it was basically, you don't know enough. It wasn't you're not smart enough. It was you don't know enough. Right. And And I've never claimed to be... If there is. I've never claimed to be the smartest person in the room, but I know a lot about a, I know a little about a lot. Yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> I know there's, there's a huge pain, but I know a little bit about just enough to to get started. Right, right, and, I, and you know, I, there's a lot to be said too about sort of the attitude that you approach. You know, you've heard, probably heard many people say, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you know you're you're in the wrong room, or you know you're you've got the wrong approach to things, or variations on that, and. And just the fact that you, as an individual, and I, I kind of share this line of thinking as well, and that is that no matter how smart you might become or how educated you might become about something, there's always room to grow. There's always room to improve. There's always room to to add to that repertoire um, to continue to grow it and evolve it uh, over time and as technology evolves. Yeah. So some of the things I heard again, you know, trying to pull out some some nuggets for the for the listeners. Um, sounds like what's really been helpful for you has been 
um, these sort of, uh, let's say, offline knowledge consumption mechanisms, you know, videos on your iPad while you're on the train or plane, um, books, either electronic or you know, physical, also while you have some downtime, podcasts while you're out running or exercising or whatever you, know, you like to do have been a good one for you, um, and then keeping up with a lot of blogs um, along with the home lab. Yeah, and the home lab really ties everything else together. Like all the consumption doesn't help if I'm not then doing something. Right. So how do you how do you kind of determine or evaluate? You know, there's 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 so much, and and you mentioned earlier sort of this attention deficit. Ooh, look, something shiny, right? How do you determine what what goes from? I mean, it, to me, it kind of seems like it, it's going to naturally be sort of a funnel-shaped thing, right, where you're going to have a lot of information coming in, and along the way you have to whittle down and weed out down to the core essential things that you're going to be willing to really spend your your attention on in the home yeah. lab. So is there a particular sort of process that you follow, or you know, how, how, do, how do you go about that? Typically, it's, I'm looking for something to solve a problem. You know, we have a situation at work, we have a system that does X and we need it to, to do something and become Y. And I'm already looking for tools and because I've been reading the RSS and I've been listening to the podcast and I've heard people talking and I go to conferences, I'm, I've already got all these words and ideas in my head and it's, it's one of those, um, I can't remember the term for it, when you, you prime your brain for a particular thing. So you know, if, if someone says, you know, there aren't, many yellow cars and you're walking down the street and suddenly every second car seems to be yellow. You just suddenly notice them. And mm. because I've already primed my brain with all these words of all the things I've read and listened to and seen, when someone says, we need a, a big data solution, I go, we should look into Apache Spark. I've heard good things about Apache Spark. And then I'll go and start doing it in the lab and, and working on it. And maybe Apache Spark's not the right solution, but I'm already one step ahead of everyone else in that when someone says big data, I think Apache Spark. Whereas when they hear big data, they go buzzword. No idea. Right, right. I got you. So do you find that funneling process is driven, it sounds like it's driven mostly by, by what's going on at the day job then? Quite a lot of it. Um, some of it's where do I want to be. Um, mm -hmm. I interviewed once for for Google and I did a lot of prep reading on you know, how to interview at Google and prior reading for interviewing at Google. And I spent a long time building out the things that people said were really important for the interview at Google. And then I got to the interview and it was nothing like what, what anyone had said it was going to be like. And I was, I was not prepared at all um, because I just, I'd, I'd just put all my effort into one thing and went, this is the thing I've got to nail to get, this, get through this interview. And it turned out I was wrong. I'm always interested in what's coming next. And I remember 20 years ago, or almost 20 years ago now, my manager telling me off for wasting company time uh, testing this unproven technology that no one was ever going to use. Uh, I believe it was called VMware. Um, and it was that's why I started doing it at home, because I didn't want my manager to think I was just wasting time on the shiny things. I started playing with it at home, and it turns out that ultimately VMware did take off, and, and Puppet took off, and... A lot of the technologies I've used over the years have, have taken off. But if I just used the stuff that the corporate environment said, these are the tools we're allowed to be using, Oracle doesn't let you have a home Oracle lab. It's, it's not something you can do. You can't have a home SAP HANA lab. You just can't do that. Um, it's trying out the different things that's been valuable. Yeah, I, th I think you really you really drove right to the heart of where I was going with that question, and that was, how, you know, it seems to me that there needs to be a balance between where you are and where you want to be, 
I think a lot of IT practitioners have a problem finding that balance. They either spend too much time in the where they are and aren't evolving with the technology because they aren't looking ahead at what's coming, or they spend too much time in where they want to be and they're not being effective in their job, and therefore that has ramifications as well. So it's really about that balance of finding the right percentage of, of time on each one on, you know, doing what needs to be done and, and doing it well and doing it to the best of your ability in your current day job, you know, where you are, and then also investing some time in the future to where you want to be so that you're prepared. That's very true. I was just at AMZ World last week in Las Vegas, and a lot of the people that I spoke to, I'd you know, be chatting to someone and I'd say, what do you do? And I'd go, oh, I'm, a, I'm the storage engineer for data protection. I look after data domains. And I say, well, what sessions have you gone to this week? And it's a four-day conference. And they go, I've gone to all the data domain sessions. Right? But, mm. but you already know data domain. Why didn't you go to the Isilon session and find out what Isilon is? Or, or go to, this is the first year that EMC did a, a code and modern operations silo where you could do, use under the EMC code banner and you could learn about using APIs and, and software-defined tools. If you spend all your time only learning about the thing that you're doing now, what do you do when that thing stops being relevant? Um, uh, years ago, I was a backup engineer, and I used to go to storage tech conferences and learn about SCSI tape drives. Uh, that's not really useful anymore for me, and it wasn't really that useful for me then, but it was the thing that was expected of me. And if you only get to go to, you know, most people, we only get to go to one or two conferences a year, especially if you live in Australia and all the cool conferences are in America and it costs $5,000 to send someone to a conference. Pick the conference that's going to give you value learn something new don't go to your 10th straight vm world or emc world or oracle open world go to velocity or black hat or oscon and and just outside your comfort zone and do something different yeah absolutely i, I couldn't i couldn't agree with you more uh, it's really important that we i believe anyway do, that we challenge ourselves and and push our our boundaries um wherever wherever it's possible to do that obviously always with that you know that in mind that you know, we do have we do have jobs right now. Assuming that you know, listener, assuming listeners are employed, and I have had some listeners who are you know in the midst of making a job transition that aren't yet employed. But for those of us, the vast majority of us out there that are employed, we have to do what our our employers want us to do, and, and we we want to do a good job for them. So we need to make sure we do that, but also we need to invest in that in that future. So, kind of looking back, um, Patrick, on kind of the the transition that you've made and and are still making, and I think that's always a key point to remind listeners, and that is that. This idea of being a full-stack engineer, there's a reason I called it the full-stack journey, and that's because I think it's an ongoing process. It's not something that you achieve like one day you wake up and, oh, I am now a full-stack engineer. Full-stack engineer is as much a, uh, a career approach as it is a definition of what somebody does. But looking back at, at the portion of your journey that you've completed already and now having the, the benefit of hindsight, which they say always has 20-20 vision, is there anything that you would have done differently um, I think there's always things that we would have done differently. And I, you know, like I said, I would have not gone to, to 10 EMC conferences in a row. Um, that's definitely something I've learned now. And I always, like those conferences are like family to me. I know lots of people. It's a, it's a reunion of people I used to work with. But for my career, they, they weren't really doing anything. And I think that that's something that I, I sh- should have realized earlier in my career. I definitely would have taken more of an interest in how a career progresses, especially uh, when I was when I was younger and I was just starting, I was very focused. I wanted to be a Unix engineer, and then I was a Unix engineer, and I had no idea what I was going to do next. So, keeping 
and I think it comes back a little to, to John's pie-shaped skill set. Keeping a, an eye of a future is something that I didn't pick up for the first few years, but I, who knows where I'd be now. Maybe if I had, when I emailed Chad Sakach to join the V-Specialist, he might have said, yeah, you've got exactly the skills I'm after, if I'd already been having that forward-looking view. I also would have spent a little more time uh, just trying different things, even wider than normal. I spent a long time not using Windows because Windows is dumb, because I'm a Unix admin and Windows is dumb. And that was wrong. Windows is not dumb. It's not the best tool for every situation, but it does have its uses. And there are some really, really funky ways of managing Windows in an automated command line fashion now. So I would have not dismissed technologies just because of, you know, VI versus Emacs or Windows versus Linux. And I think that picking a side and just closing my vision to the others was a, a not a great idea. Okay. All right. That's Those are all, I think, very useful, very practical um, tips that, that I, others can, can take away from, from the podcast. And, and, you know, what I heard is kind of going back again to this idea of, you know, look, if you're, if you're limited on the number of conferences or big events that you can go to, pick the ones that are really going to challenge you, that pick the ones where you're going to have the most growth out of it. Don't as much as we love to go back and see the the people that we know and 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 the, and the community with which we we've been involved, we have to, from a career perspective, we have to invest again in our in our future to you know where we want to be, not just where we are now. Um, we need to pay a little more attention to kind of you know what what we're going to do in the career, not just you know this this one short term goal of being a Unix admin or being a you know whatever, but uh, kind of where where we go past that and, and making sure that we have a plan and, and an approach. Um, so that, that's uh, very, very good information. Um, one so, other thing, just yeah, just please in. go ahead. I, I also would have much earlier in in my journey looked for mentors and people I could learn from and people that could offer me guidance, not necessarily technical, but maybe career, or not necessarily career, but technical. But not having someone that I could talk to. All of my all of the people I talked to were my peers; they were on the same level as me. Um, I never made an effort to go and talk to people that had actually already blazed a trail and I could learn so much from. And that's something I've really only picked up in the last couple of years and it's made a huge difference to the way I see things in from a technical and from a business perspective. It, are there so that's that's very very important. I'm glad that you brought that up. Are there particular sort of resources that you have found useful in this mentorship or is this only within you know, kind of your current organization, or I'm, ju- I'm just curious if it's if it's something that's not organization specific. Um, it's not necessarily organization specific, and some of it is you can pick someone that that may not even actually you may not even really get to talk to, but just make sure you read their blogs. And you know, we talked about Chad earlier. I read his blog and I follow him on Twitter, and he says a lot of smart things and I like to be aware of what he's saying and I like to think about what he's saying and think about how I can apply some of his ideas to what I'm doing. Um, Mark Toomey said at a conference last year, you've got to have a team and sometimes people don't even know they're on your team. You just pick people and say, I'm going to, I'm going to learn from you even if, you know, how many people have actually met David Allen versus how many people do getting things done. Um, inside my industry, looking to people that I used to work for a small company and the founder just seemed to know everybody. No matter where we went to work, which customers, you'd, you'd be working and you'd come back to the office at the end of a week and he'd say, oh, did you run into Dave? And we'd go, no, who's Dave? And he'd go, oh, he's the CTO there. And I'm like, I don't talk to the CTOs. I talk three levels below. And he'd be like, oh, just, just go and 
you know, have a coffee with Dave next time you're there. And, and sure enough, the, the CTO is just a person. You can go and approach him and say, hey, I'd like to pick your brains. Sometimes they're a very busy person, but don't be put off just because they're three levels above you or because they're, they're the ones that have got a PA. You know, it doesn't stop you from approaching them and talking to them. And most people really like to help. Yeah, I think that idea of having people that you look to in a in a non-formal sort of mentor-mentee relationship. Um, I was reading a book recently, and I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. It was called The Little Book of Talent, if I'm recalling the title correctly. And it was talking about uh, people on your that, that are on your windshield. These are the people that you look at, the people that you watch, the people that you observe doing what they do. And in so doing, you basically pick up information from them. You can nurture your own talent by by, you know, observing others who have already you know, gone before you in some, some fashion. Um, so I think that's a, an important aspect of this sort of idea of having mentors, uh, aside from the formal definition of mentors, but having this other, this other view as well. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. As we, as we prepare to, to kind of wind down a little bit here, um, a few other questions. So w- one of the things that I'm, I'm really keen on here on the podcast is giving listeners some real kind of actionable things that they can take away from it. Right. And I want it to be useful. And so with that in mind, you know, I would imagine that there are a fair number of folks out there who are listening to the podcast who may be considering the same sort of transition in their own career. They may be one of these single silo folks and they want to break out of that. They want to embrace more automation in, in their, in their workflows and in their mindset. They want to move uh, from one silo to another, or they want to add some additional technologies. What sort of advice might you have to others who are looking to make the same leap? Are there, are there things you would tell them, Hey, be careful not to do this and, or be careful and be sure to do this or, or, you know, what, 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 what advice would you have there? And obviously that advice will be colored by your specific experience, but that's okay. Absolutely. And I think that part of it is pick your battles. So if you want to learn something, if you, if you want to learn Python and Python is not relevant at all to your day job, it's going to be hard to convince your boss that you need to spend time on this. Um, but if you can, if you can find a way to make Python relevant to your day job and you can write something fairly quickly, even when you're just starting with Python, that solves a real business problem, and you can show your boss and you can say, imagine what I could do if you let me study Python for you know, an hour a day or, or half an hour a day uh, and actually spend some time trying to solve some of these issues we have. And I think that managers are a lot more receptive when you come to them and you can already show them business value. And I use that term a lot, business value. And part of it's because I used to be a sales engineer and business value is something you always promise. But it's also because it's something I really believe is how you get ahead when you work for a large business is you have to show the value of what you're doing. And if you can show them a little bit of value and then say, you know, I just need a little bit more time and I can do more with this, they're more likely to, to support you in that. And the, the other thing with, with learning, especially learning to code or learning automation, whether it's Puppet or, or Ansible or whatever tool you're trying to learn, is you need to use it every day. I studied Japanese in primary school for years, and yet when I first went to Japan, I could barely order a cup of coffee because I wasn't using Japanese every day. Now I practice Japanese on a regular basis, and I can get by a lot better because I practice. And it's the same with my Python skills as it is with my Japanese skills. If I don't use them, I lose them. 
So I try and do, uh, I can't remember who I first read it from. Uh, it might have been Joel on software, and it was uh, always be coding, ABC. Just do something every day, just a little bit. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. You don't need to create an operating system every day, but maybe you could just automate one little thing. Maybe you write a, a one-line regular expression, or maybe you're not even automating. Maybe you're just doing a, an online quiz or um, a, a regular expression golf is one of my favorites. Um, it was an XKCD, and then someone actually made a website of it where you can just practice writing regular expressions to solve problems and try and do it in the shortest regular expression possible. And just doing something like that every day, just so you're constantly practicing and, and embedding those things in your head. Yeah, that's that's very good advice. I've heard a, a couple other guests also indicate that, you know, really it's it's about using it on a, on a regular basis. It's about aligning it with the responsibilities uh, at your your current day job, or the or the tools and technologies that your team uses, uh, it makes it easier if you are using something that they are also using because you have these built in resources and and it just makes sense. It kind of uh, it goes back to that thing that you mentioned about business value, something that a lot of technology professionals overlook because they say, "Hey, I'm a technology pro, I don't need to worry about business value," but in reality, we all need to worry about business value. Um, so that's great. Perfect. Um, great information. Thank you. So, uh, one last question, uh, we're going to, we're going to ask you to put on your, your, um, you know, forward looking prognostication, uh, cap and gaze into your crystal ball and kind of tell us what are, what are sort of the things coming down the pike that have, you know, gotten your attention right now? You know, we, we've talked a lot about investing some time in where you want to be. We've talked a lot about making sure that our experience and our knowledge evolves as we evolve that it moves with us over time so in your opinion based on you know your experience and your career and your market what are some things that people should be looking at what are some things people should be at least you know hey i know what that is and therefore when somebody says big data i know i need to go to spark or somebody says something x i need to go to y you know what are those sort of connections that are really gathering your attention at the moment yeah, big data has been on my mind a lot lately, and it's uh, it was what I did at AMC World was I spent a lot of my time in the big data track and talked to their data scientists and people like Bill Schmazo, um, who wrote the, the Big Data MBA, and uh, the the way companies are starting to realise that they can use big data, not just companies but governments as well, is really changing a lot about uh, the way the world is working. Uh, I read a blog yesterday about a person in New York City who, who got a fine for, for parking somewhere that used to be illegal but is no longer illegal. And they used the New York City's open data and they pulled in all the big data and they did some analysis on it and they came back and realized that New York City was making millions of dollars a year fining people for something that wasn't actually illegal. And when they presented it back to the city, the city went, wow, you're right. We we spent all this money training the, the ticket inspectors on uh, not the parking inspectors on how to on what was legal and what wasn't. We didn't tell the police, and police also issue fines. So it was the police issuing the fines, not knowing that the law had changed five years ago. And using tools like, like big data and automation, the scale of what we can achieve now is just phenomenal. I remember when I first started in my career, it was very exciting. If you could get some timeshare on a Sun E25K or an E10K just to, to get access to that sort of you know scale of system. Whereas now, I can do that with my credit card on Amazon. I can spin up a far faster machine and do data analysis 
and work work stuff out. I can pull in information at a level that I could just never even dream about with our substandard Australian internet speeds. But if I can just rent a machine on the other side of the world that's got a 10 gig pipe, it's very different. So I think big data is really, um, and I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid a pun here, but it's it's going to get even bigger. Um, I also think that security is, is finally becoming a first-class citizen in a way that for a long time security were seen as an, a roadblock and an impediment to getting things done. And I think that now cybersecurity, with all of the data breaches and privacy issues, has finally gotten people's attention and is becoming something that more companies are going to invest more time and money in. So learning how to how that works, how intrusion detection works, how how they use, and again, big data, to find out when there's been an issue, I think is that's certainly where I'm starting to spend more of my time. And I mentioned the Elasticsearch stack, ELK. If that's where I'm learning at the moment, is trying to get a handle on what big data is and how it applies to, to security and to business and to government. Very cool. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Big data is, is an area that I... I will freely admit I have not had the time to pay a whole lot of attention to that. Um, it is certainly gaining a lot of attention, but it's uh, good to know that um, you know we've got some smart folks out like out there like you that can break it down and, and bring it out for the rest of us. <laughs> so awesome, great. So uh, uh, you know, closing thoughts. Anything that you want to share with the listeners before we wrap up? I think I'm, I'm just about done, actually. <laughs> I'm looking here at my notes, and I think I've covered off everything that I wanted to to say. That's that's perfect. No problem at all. Great. So uh, thanks again for uh, for joining me, Patrick. Um, so, Patrick, real quick, uh, are there social media outlets where people can follow you, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, blog, whatever that you want to share with the listeners real quick? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Patrick Kelso on Twitter and GitHub and Instagram. Uh, and pretty much any site where I could get Patrick Kelso. Um, so I don't tweet a lot. I, I find that uh, my my grandmother, when I was young, used to say, you know, if you haven't got anything interesting to say, don't say anything. So I'm not the type of person who tweets about breakfast every day. I do tend to tweet a lot at conferences, though, when I like to share what people are saying and what cool things are happening at conferences. GitHub is... Uh, it, again, it's not something I use every day, but it's certainly a place where you can see what things am I using now because GitHub is a backup of, of all the things that I've been playing with and trying. And you can see projects come and, and die when I stop being interested or you can see the way things have advanced through GitHub. So that's a really valuable place. I also do a readme on my GitHub of a bunch of links to how to do DevOps workflows is what I called it um, because I couldn't think of anything else. But it's it's all about you know blogs to read and and I'll be honest your blog is one of the ones on there Scott, but also you know podcasts to listen to books to read things to do to try and get started in this new world of software defined everything. Oh, that sounds like an, an outstanding resource. I'll I'll be sure and add that to the show notes so that um, those of us uh, following the podcast can look that up and have a look at uh, the resources you've got on there. Great, excellent. Thank you so much, Patrick. All right, uh, listeners, thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Full Stack Journey podcast. My name is Scott Lowe. If you want to find me online, you can find me on Twitter as at Scott underscore Lowe, as uh, Lowe Scott on GitHub, and, of course, my blog that Patrick just mentioned, blog.scottlowe.org. Uh, a lot of the stuff that uh, 
that I am working on inevitably shows up there. So feel free to subscribe to the RS feed there. Uh, really appreciate you guys taking the time to join us for another episode of the podcast. Look forward to your feedback and uh, we'll see you again next time. Thanks. Thanks.